today we're going to be talking about love, which is the last and the characteristics that he's contrasting basically what's been going on with the false teachers and walking by the flesh, and then what happens when you have the life of Christ and the kind of transformation that takes place. And if there was ever a message that we needed to live by, if there was a supreme characteristic that we needed to display in the church, how can you be love? Uh, This is the need of the hour. It's the need of the hour for our families, for our churches. So let's stand as we take a look at this passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, Father, we ask that as we gather here today that your Holy Spirit would again speak to our hearts, that we would not allow any blindness, any confusion, any pride, arrogance to get in the way of your word ministering to us and us walking out here transformed. It's not enough that we like it. It's not enough that we're happy with it. It's not enough that we agree with it. We want to allow your word to transform us. And so may we grow, may we mature, may your Holy Spirit bring transformation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we reflect on the shooting that took place in Oregon this past week, and how politicians have used it to advance their own agendas, it becomes apparent that politics are like life in this way. That we often accept surface solutions rather than getting to the root of a problem. Right? I mean, we're all prone to do that, to accept surface solutions as opposed to getting to the root of the problem. I mean, people are killing each other, so what we need is just stricter gun control. Or you have a marriage issue, just go out once a week, that'll fix it. Or you struggle with porn, just put a filter on the computer, that will fix it. It's not that these solutions are in and of themselves bad, they're just woefully incomplete. When you put all your marbles in a surface solution like these, I think we can become blinded by our own advocacy and just talk to somebody who, you know, parrots that stuff and you'll get the idea. We're often far too simplistic and we ignore issues that complicate our black and white approach. Now, such was the case with the church at Colossae, where people had basically uh, taken a relationship with God that is, that is often tough, that's hard, right, and sometimes messy. They've taken it and reduced it down to a formula of certain festivals, certain rituals that you need to do, and then to top it off, you know, do these kind of esoteric experiences with God, and then you are on the in-group with God. Now, this was far too simplistic besides being completely misguided. And I want to suggest that when it comes to our Christian life, there may not be a greater nemesis than a watered-down Christianity, a simplistic kind of faith. And why is that? Because religious placebos do not fix 
the heart. We never get to the roots. And frankly, many of us have grown up in those environments, have we not? We have. Now, I say this not because CCC has arrived. I say this not because, you know, we've got it down pat. I don't mean that at all. I say this just so we can recognize those unhealthy patterns that can sometimes creep into a faith community or, or even a family. Here's an assumption I'm going to make, and I, I hope that you all agree with me, that as human beings, we have an uncanny capacity to be comfortable with unhealthiness. Right? We have an uncanny capacity to be comfortable in our own unhealthiness, whether it's unhealthiness with ourselves or unhealthiness in our relationships. And if you question that capacity, just talk to the addict or talk to the couple that is used to a bad marriage for decades. Now, this is especially true in religion, which is encased, usually, in absolute truth And therefore, people assume that their experiences also are absolute and ought to be accepted without question. And there's the rub. There's not one Christian, not one pastor, not one church who doesn't have issues, who doesn't have things that that, that we need to work on, things that we need to change, right? Right? I mean, we all should be maturing. We all should be growing. We all should be changing. Listen, our nemesis is being comfortable with unhealthiness. That's not the only nemesis, but that's a big one. Comfortable with unhealthiness. Perhaps that's why Paul started out with some of these traits like humility, meekness. I mean, if anything communicates Uh, teachableness. It's the idea of humility, being able to admit my issues and, and, and see my plight and be honest about it. How is it, though, that we can get comfortable with our unhealthiness? I mean, I think of this a lot in, in my own life. You know, the prayers that I'm praying all the time, just, Lord, help me to see, you know, some of the crud I mean, maybe my wife tells me, but maybe I don't see it as, as readily, right? You got others around you that are kind of pointing the finger and saying, and you're like, eh, no, I don't think so. Now, it's either pride and arrogance or blindness or they're always wrong. I'm assuming that not all social groupings, not all faith communities, not all families are the same. There are some that are healthy, some that are not. Really, I should say some that are more healthy or some that are not, because the fact is, is that all of us, whether it's a church or a family, we've got some aspects of unhealthiness and aspects of healthiness, right? I mean, there are always things that we can improve on. But what I have found is that for those that have a strong sense of being accepted in Christ, they have the ability to address these things more readily for those who don't. And they have some insecurity in that, and they they look for acceptance with others. Uh, So then that acceptance with others kind of becomes like a drug. And so usually you find extremes. You find people that cannot endure any relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a church or a family. You know, you have people that are changing spouses, changing churches. They never talk it out. It's just a pattern consistently in their life. You You got that person. 
And then you have the person on the other end of the spectrum that they would rather get along, or not get along, but get, but get used to toxic relationships than to have none at all. They have no boundaries because they want to be accepted so badly, they're just hoping it'll change. I mean, our neediness is so acute, we refuse to have any boundaries and we remain in toxic relationships. And so we have a very difficult time erecting those boundaries and addressing those issues. And for a lot of people, it's because they don't even think they're worth it. That's why I mean that this aspect of who we are in Christ is so critical. Or we figure again, you know, it's better to have bad contact with somebody than none at all. That's an unhealthiness that we have to face. I think what the book of Colossians was trying to do is to help Christians respond in a healthy fashion in their relationship with God and with one another. There were people who were in the midst of of false teaching that had infiltrated the church, and they were creating, besides having the bad teaching, they were creating a kind of social pressure for the Christians to follow this twisted slant on, on faith by observing these Judaistic decrees such as eating, drinking, uh, festivals, and then superstitious avoidance of some physical practice, uh, which was an extension of their, uh, their Gnostic, which means um, um, to, to know these Gnostic beliefs. Gnosticism was an, an early form of, um, of false teaching or dualism where physical is bad, spiritual is good. All right, And so these Judaizers topped off all that ritualism with this sense of Gnosticism, which said, now if we could talk with angels or you know, have these weird experiences, that would really put us on the in crowd and separate us from everybody else. And the fact is, this goes on even amongst Christian groups, right? Let's be honest, okay? You know, if you follow these subcultural codes, you do it the right way, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Follow the right rules, get in line, and then you're in. And if you don't, you're not approved. And there's great condemnation that comes. It's, it's not unusual that bad theology is also followed by manipulative social pressure. It's common for cults. I mean, cults usually you can find one of three areas theologically that they try to add or take away from either Christ, salvation, or the Bible. And then they add to that this societal pressure where it's impossible to get out of the group without getting this load of condemnation or even threats. How many of you have seen the documentary Going Clear about Scientology? You ought to check it out. It's unbelievable the amount of pressure that they put on people uh, who wanted to get out of the cult and couldn't because of this social pressure. But listen, it's easy for us to point fingers at that, but what I'm saying is, let's look at our own families. Let's look at the way we as a faith community operate, and are we putting undue pressure on people, not honoring that they are free in Christ to make their own decisions, instead manipulating, coercing. This is unhealthy. What kind of of a community of faith are we building? What kind of family are we really building? So what you have is, is Paul really describing healthy belief, healthy behavior in these social communities, and contrasting it with the false teachers. 
I mean, when we have problems in the ranks, we have to take note if our love is conditional, if our influence is coercive, and if our relationships are toxic. Now, any of you who listen at all to people who don't like the church today and stay away from the church know that there are some issues. And, and by the way, I don't put all the blame on the church. The church has its issues, but people are also responsible to deal with that, to be honest about that, and, 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 and to deal with their own issues, all right? But that aside, many people do not feel safe in Christian community, a Christian community. Many folks feel like they have been frozen out of a particular Christian community because they did not tell the party line. Many folks hold their cards close to their chest, never really revealing who they really are to the people around them because they know they're going to get a potload of condemnation. Does anybody else see that there's something wrong with that picture? I heard a story of a a young man whose dad was a pastor, and this young man drank beer, and he kept hiding it from his parents whenever they would come over because he knew they would hit the roof if they saw him drink beer. It was years ago I heard about this. That's not the beer that's the issue, all right? It's rather that a son felt that he could not be honest with his own parents because he knew if he was, it would, he'd have hell to pay. And then that, that causes me to think, okay, I ask myself, all right, have Janet and I in our home created an atmosphere, and all our kids are out of the house now, but have we created an atmosphere where our kids, you know, are feigning Christianity because they fear our condemnation? Or are they motivated out of a true love for Christ? I mean, frankly, that thought just absolutely compels me to constantly go to my kids because they get a double whammy because I'm a pastor. Now, you talk about the condemnation that they just put on themselves. I don't have to help them because they know there's, there's a great weight that comes with that. I'm not expecting anybody to feel sorry for them or us, but just that that's a fact. What's motivating us? And what are we providing as a motivation? What is it that we reward in our families? Is it the love that's shown and how we treat each other? Is it, boy, look at that achievement in athletics. Look at that achievement in, in you know, academics. And our kids find real quick, as long as I perform right, I have the approval of my parents. But when I don't, you know, the C student just doesn't get quite as much approval. The guy that's a dork doesn't get quite as much approval. The son is not quite as good as everybody else. That's a problem. And churches can operate the same way. Why? Because we make mountains out of molehills with these Christian subcultural issues. And the social pressure that we create in our families and in our churches and with our friends, it just might point to a sickness. It tells us that we can't live in unity unless everybody agrees with us. That's not unity. It tells us that we have to be in control. It tells us, I think, that we're perhaps losing sight of bigger issues.
Listen, I don't stand up here as a guy who's got it down pat. Janet and I have fallen down many times as parents. In fact, I remember it was a year or so ago, I had my kids on the stage, and they told you my problems as a parent. Many of you remember that, what my issues were. We're all in process, and I did that just to communicate to you, listen, we're all just learning here, okay? But I think most seasoned parents would agree, and this, again, applies to church as well, that you want the faith and convictions of your children to be their own, right? And so so we, we tried to reason from a, a biblical perspective to let them know what we believe. We, we tried to live a life that, that, that was consistent with truth, but here's the rub. If their convictions and if their life were different from ours, our number one job is still to love them, not to set them straight. Our number one job is to love them. We have had this tested so many times because, you know, you know, our kids have been in and out of jail multiple times, just problems. All right, no. It's easy to stand up here. The point is it's easy to stand up here and say these things. But when you see a child living much different than what you wish, man, that's where the rub comes, right? I mean, there's a, there's a depth, there's a, there's a strength to our love that gets tested in those times when you have those issues. When, when there's conflict, when you are disappointed, whether it's in a spouse or a child or a church, And it's in those moments that we have to ask ourselves, is my style of relating consistent with love? So here's some practical suggestions I just throw out that apply both to to family and, and to church. First, seek to differentiate between manipulation and influence. Think about this. What's the difference between manipulation and influence? By the way, If you can't tell the difference, you have a hard time, just ask your kids. Ask your spouse. I guarantee you, they can give you some answers. Now, of course, if you're 100% confident that you never sin or you're too afraid to face yourself, then don't ask. All right? Number two, identify ways that I convey condemnation. Oh, man, I'm a pastor, Don't I have the right to pull out the word of God at every corner with our kids and preach to them? All that I was missing was a podium in our living room, okay? Kids, stand there. Listen to this. Limit the lectures and disapproving looks, okay? They already know how you feel after the first lecture, right? Here's a rule. More lecture more distance. More lectures, the more they just want to hightail it out of there. Thirdly, value the relationship more than any behavior or issue. I've often thought about this. You know, Janet and I often role play, I'll say, well, what would we do in this situation? Well, what would I do if I found out, let's say, my, one of my kids was having an affair? What would I do? What would I do if I found out one of my kids was on drugs? What would I do? How would I act? 
I've told this story before, but I just, I just love this story because I think it, it says everything that, that I, I want to say. I, one of my best friends got his girlfriend pregnant. We were in Bible college together. And, and some of you have probably heard me tell this story before. He told me what happened when he had to call his girlfriend's dad, who was an upstanding man, owned a business, real strong Christian, and tell him this news. And you know what the dad said? He said, I'm going to hang up this phone right now, <laughs> and I'm going to call you back. And I thought, wow, that is the smartest thing that that man could have done. So he didn't say anything stupid. And of course, <laughs> my friend said, you know, that half hour was about the longest half hour he'd ever had in his <laughs> life, all right? But, but when he called back, he said, okay, first thing, I love you. I'm here to support you. I just love that. I mean, my friend didn't need more condemnation. He didn't need a Bible verse on why it's wrong to fornicate. He already knew all that. All right? He had done wrong now. He just needed, he needed grace and love. Our kids already, if one of my kids does something like that, they already know and are very aware of the consequences of their sin. They're going to have to live with that for the rest of their lives. I don't want to add to it. Right? Yes, there's disappointment. Yes, there is. But my responsibility to love never ends. That's my first duty. Yes, there are boundaries. I mean, if I had a, a kid living with his girlfriend, they're not going to stay in my house. If I had a kid on drugs, I'm not going to give them a bunch of money. That's just the way it is. You got yourself in financial trouble, I am not going to bail you out. You're going to have to learn the hard way. All right? I mean, those are boundaries that our kids understand. They've got to live with the consequences of that. Now, some may do different. I'm just telling you, that's how we did it. There are boundaries. That's my only point. I mean, if I, if I had a kid who's a meth addict, all right, I don't want him stealing from me. I'm just not going to hand over cash to him. I'm not going to throw money down a rat hole in that sense. The point is, I'm not claiming this is easy, and these are, these are tough situations that we each have to think through. We think that if we follow God, it's just not going to be messy. <laughs> we think, you know, if I do the right things, it's not going to be complicated. But listen, we don't get to choose the terms of what life throws at us. And our primary responsibility in the midst of these things is to love well. And if we use social pressure to control or prove a point, we're just pushing people away. And what good have we accomplished? It's why a lot of Christians, Christian home, when, when the kids get old enough and they move out, man, their faith just goes south. I mean, once they are out of the sight line of their parents, it's like, Katie, bar the door, right? That's why many churches have a difficult time retaining young people because there's no safe place to go where they can express their doubts or their frustrations or, or, or questions. And unfortunately, this is just way too common. And it's, I'd just say, it's not unique to churches. It's pretty much all social groupings because that's the way humans are. We're fleshly that way and, and self-protective and condemning. And when we are transformed by God, if we as believers aren't bringing love, a different quotient, a different equation to it, 
we're looking just like them. And that's why Paul is writing Colossians. Don't get on board with this ritualistic stuff. Don't get on board with all this, you know, social pressure so you can be a part of the in crowd. Look at all these things you already have in Christ. That's what he spent all of chapter 1 doing. He deals with the theology in chapter 1, actually the first couple chapters, about who we are in Christ. He establishes the the truthfulness of the gospel in chapter 1, then goes to talk about how Christ is supreme over all things. I mean, how could you be duped by some movement or a person or another religion when you have all these things in Christ? He then goes on to talk about how Christ has transformed our lives through the gospel, and all our sins were nailed on that cross. Christ paid the penalty. We read this in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, theologically, these false teachers were at odds with the gospel. And Paul wanted the church to see this clearly so they wouldn't be drawn into their net. But then they also had this whole social grouping thing and and social pressure, you know, to, to be on the in crowd. And that has no power when we understand I have this acceptance in Christ. So whether... You know, whether you think I'm in or not isn't going to bug me because I'm secure in Christ. And in addition, the church ought to be providing this tremendous sense of community and love and acceptance because there's a stark difference between the way a false teacher group, cult group operates and how the church should operate. Honoring the image of God quality, giving people Um, giving people credit that they have a brain and they can figure this stuff out and not trying to control everything and and list everything that they need to follow. And they have their own relationship with God. And, you know, I'm not up here speaking ex cathedra. Uh, Everything, every uh, word from my mouth is how you need to live. The fact is there's some freedom in here. That's what unity is about. You know, that's why we can, we can have people who have a different political affiliation, people who feel differently on secondary issues in the Christian life. It just shouldn't bug us so much. We still can experience great love together, all right? Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the supreme virtue to seek. And notice Again, the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the power of the risen Christ. And he talked about this in the earlier verses about what it looks like when we had this old life and now we have this new life in Christ. But the capstone is love. It is woven through all the other virtues that we have looked at so far. We can say it this way. A person may be able to feign compassion or feign humility and not love. But let me tell you something. You cannot love... And then not be humble. If you're going to love, humility goes with it. If you're going to truly love, compassion and kindness go with that. But a person could feign compassion and not really love. I mean, you can give your grandmother cookies, but, you know, you may do it because you want something from your grandmother. That's not love. It may look kind, but it's not. 
So I think what, what Paul is trying to communicate here is that love is, is the capstone. It holds it all together. Love is the glue that brings these, brings these virtues into completeness. So it's impossible to love and not wear all these other five garments that he talks about. And he says, above all things, it means love is supreme in importance and completeness. There's no better indicator of the genuous of our faith than love. It's not, are you a Christian? Uh, yeah, I'm A.G. Are you a Christian? Uh, I'm Baptist. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was baptized. Yeah. See, that's not the mark. Uh, See, I know it gets kind of complicated. You think, well, I just wish it was easy. Well, you know what? I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. Well, that's, you know, that's good. You have remembrance of when this first started. But let me ask you, has there been any difference in your life? Are you loving other people? Or are you that Christian jerk who's always condemning, not loving? If that's the case, you are stuck. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying you're stuck. You're not maturing. Because love is the mark that Christ is ruling your life. There's no better indicator. And and Paul even says, it's like love holds us all together. Um, uh, People in those days, you know, wore a tunic. It'd just flow all over. And so they'd take a sash and what would keep everything from just, you know, sliding all around. The King James actually had a phrase that it would use often about gird your loins, right? It's a way of saying that love keeps this all together. There's no better marker for maturity or completeness than love. That's his point. I like what 1 Timothy 1.5 says. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. What is it that fuels love? I mean, if, if I'm lacking in love, what can I do? How can I address it? Well, first of all, we know this, that false teaching always produces strife, condemnation, arguments, all that kind of thing. Why? Because it's fleshly and demonic, right? I mean, you can't operate in the flesh and expect good results, good fruit, spiritual results. But the gospel produces love. When people are, have been changed by the life of Christ, there ought to be godly fruit. It turns a selfish heart into one that loves. The influence of the false teachers, that led to conformity to the law, but the influence of the gospel leads to the social groupings of family. And Paul gets into all this. And churches that love well. So, this love, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. It's, it's deeply and divinely produced. It comes from the heart, that inward part of, of the human life. It's, a, it's where the spiritual desires and passions arise. Now, a pure heart is a cleansed heart. Only the person who's experienced this divine washing of regeneration is regarded as clean before God. We're to operate with a conscience that, uh, uh, that is free to relate in a healthy manner. If my conscience is always condemning me or I feel all this shame, I don't understand what Christ has done for me. I mean, that is a big hindrance in being free to love people. Why? Because the first time I get hurt, I'm going to coil up again in that fetal position. I don't want to get out of the house. Now, there's multiple reasons as to why we respond that way, but I'm just saying that is one of them. So we're to operate with a good conscience. 
And a good conscience understands that Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I live in light of that truth. I don't have confidence because I'm a good guy, because I have a degree, or I look at my car and my house. That's not where my confidence, my confidence is derived. It's because I know that I'm a son of God, and God has forgiven me. And I'm not, I'm not putting my marbles and all those other things. Now, I can enjoy those things, but it's not where my security rests. So when trials and tribulation come, I could even lose all those things. I know I'm still going to be okay. I'm a child of God. And then love is of a sincere faith. It means it's without hypocrisy. I mean, belief and behavior correspond. And what, uh, you know what a humble Christian does? Uh, one of the best things I could say about our kids is that they forgave us often. You know, we made a mistake as a parent. If I was a jerk to them, I could say, hey, man, I, I really blew it here. I said, I shouldn't have said this, shouldn't have acted this way. It's so quick to forgive. I mean, they, I think they love that kind of honesty. It just seems like I was honest a lot because <laughs> there was a lot of mistakes. Right? <laughs> love goes the extra mile. It goes the extra mile. Listen, Love is not easy, right? Love is not the easiest thing to do. Love is hard. Love is messy. Because it's easy to quit on somebody. It's easy to quit on a marriage. easy to quit on a church. It's easy. I get hurt, I'm out of here. That's easy. But to love through that, genuinely, to sit down and have that tough conversation, why? Because I care? That's tough. That's supernatural. That's love. And in this way, the body of Christ can experience genuine unity. So you know what that means? We got to embrace messy. We got to embrace complicated. We got to embrace not always being comfortable. Because love is not the easy route. Love is the hard route.